I've wondered about some of the broader enduring conditions presently in place to maintain our separation from life. For now, I've identified five significant ones. Welcome to NVC Life. I'm Rochelle Lamb, veteran NVC trainer and relationship coach, helping listeners navigate interpersonal conflict and ground more deeply into relational living. Greetings, fellow humans. Several months ago, I listened to an engaging conversation featuring author and cultural activist Stephen Jenkinson, who was interviewed by Alex Gomez-Marin of the Paris Centre located in Tuscany, Italy. Earlier in their conversation, Jenkinson said the following, You know, in my corner of the world, the Native people had a name for the allegation of the separation between Canada and the United States that the surveyors had just arbitrarily put somewhere. They called it, of all things, the medicine line. And I think the reason for that is not that they were so impressed with this allegation of a line going through the prairies, which is kind of a goofy idea, but they couldn't believe the importance that the white people came to this imaginary line with. And so I think it was a recognition that the colonists of the time were infatuated with the notion of separation and severance and subsequent diminishment of mutuality and the commons. Of course, all these things are gone, and I think the natives were floored, as we might say, or flabbergasted, that we could live our lives as if something was true that nobody could see. It's not clear to me that anyone who looks like me in this world, I'm going to extend it beyond Anglo-North America, that anybody who looks like me in this world now has the capacity to conduct themselves as if they genuinely belong where they are. The closest we can get is that we own where we are. And that's the difference between instinct and habit. Instincts are what we envy in animals and fancy ourselves to be able to rewild ourselves accordingly And habit is what we have instead. Habit is a kind of domesticated or lapsed or feral instinct. We now have the habit of land ownership, the habit of land severance, the habit of private property, the habit of you can't go here because I own it. And there's lots of others that are secondarily attached, but it's a great lament, among other things, to come to an understanding that the place that you imagine grants you respite and reprieve and rest so-called home, is predicated so severely on the severance between you and the place upon which you genuinely depend. I mean, genuinely, not in the sense of lamentable, genuine dependence, the kind of dependence that belongs. So I encourage listeners to uh, tune into the full conversation, which I've included a link to in the show notes. So the words separation and severance were spoken a few times by Jenkinson, reminders of the degree of disconnection that has been plaguing us modern humans for quite some time now, which I'm now going to connect to nonviolent communication. Within the NBC framework, Marshall Rosenberg identifies four ways that we humans disconnect from each other. These are one, diagnosis in the form of judgment, analysis, criticism, and comparison. Two, denial of personal responsibility. Three, demanding things or actions from others. 
and four, deserve-oriented language. Because it's my belief that these four Ds of disconnection are so deeply ingrained that they feel natural to many of us, I've wondered about some of the broader enduring conditions presently in place to maintain our separation from life. For now, I've identified five significant ones. Condition number one, not knowing our history. Sure, we're taught history in school, but I don't think I have to tell you that we are taught an authorized version of history, which means there is much history that we don't know, a history that, if we were to learn it, would cause us to feel very troubled about how we live today. We are disconnected from our history. Condition two, not being connected to the land that feeds us and shelters us. Most of us have no real idea where our food comes from other than reading the stickers and labels on the grocery store package. We have no direct contact with the actual land, actual climate, or actual labors. I'm not speaking for everyone, but generally, this is the case. We are disconnected. Condition three, modern technologies the main ones being communication, electrical, energy, manufacturing, medical, and transportation. While we love our technologies, there's no doubt that no technology derives out of thin air and without consequence. Some of those consequences are dire, if not to us directly, then to places and peoples elsewhere in the world who must contend with them. It's hard to get excited about deeply examining the dark side of technologies when our day-to-day lives are so deeply intertwined with the benefits we receive from those technologies. Condition four, business and education systems whose main raison d'etre is to keep the societal consumer machine well-oiled. Businesses and schools don't teach how to live in the natural world and care responsibly for the planet, just the opposite. Get your degree so that you can become a participating member of a sick society, even as it purports itself to be increasingly fair and just. In his book, Life Enriching Education, Marshall Rosenberg writes, Life enriching classrooms and schools are likely to be struggling within school systems whose purpose is unfortunately not supportive of them. In any domination system, the goal, unwittingly or otherwise, is to perpetuate the status quo an economic system in which a few people maintain their wealth and privilege while others remain permanently in or near poverty. Such systems are not going to respond positively in the long term to the kind of educational innovations that I propose. It may be possible to launch new educational programs, but unless we organize ongoing teams of people to sustain them, the schools are likely to soon revert back to their original structures and procedures. Condition five, living in an elderless society. As author and poet Robert Bly says in his book, The Sibling Society, I use the phrase sibling society to suggest a culture fundamentally without fathers, mothers, grandfathers, grandmothers, or ancestors. The thinking is horizontal. Adults, Bly writes, regress towards adolescence, and adolescents seeing that have no desire to become adults. So 
There are more conditions, to be sure, and each one of these is a subject unto itself, but I think it's important to wonder about where the interpersonal tendencies towards blame, criticism, defensiveness, etc. come from. I see them as symptomatic of larger sociocultural conditions that have been underway long before even the oldest living person on the planet was born over 100 years ago. In the final pages of her book, My Name is Chellis and I'm in Recovery from Western Civilization, author Chellis Glendinning writes, Haudenosaunee statesman Leon Shenandoah tells a story in which all the creatures of the world gather in council to clarify the jobs they each are to perform in the service of creation. One by one, they step forward. The beaver is here to look after the wetlands and to monitor how the streams flow through the mountains. The worm is here to burrow through the earth so that the roots of plants may find air and nutrients. The deer is here to slip through the woodlands to watch what is happening. The council is progressing well, but one poor creature stands in the background, uncertain of this role. This is the human. At last, a man steps forward and haltingly addresses the assembly. We are confused, he says. What is the purpose of human beings? The animals and the plants, the insects and the trees are all surprised. Don't you know? It's so obvious. No, replies the man. We need you to tell us. And the other creatures of the world respond. Your purpose is to glory in it all. Your job is to praise creation. Glendening writes further, all nature-based cultures praise creation. Some do so with daily practices such as waking with the dawn to thank the spirits. Others dance into the night to maintain balanced relations with the forces of the natural world, while still others perform tribal ceremonies for the purpose of keeping the world going. As Shenandoah explains, our religion is all about thanking the Creator. We thank Him for the world and every animal and plant in it. We thank Him for everything that exists. We don't take it for granted that a tree's just there. We thank the Creator for that tree. If we don't thank Him, maybe the Creator will take that tree away. That's what our ceremonies are all about. That's why they're important. We pray for the harmony of the whole world. We believe that if we didn't do our ceremonies in the longhouse, the world would come to an end. It's our ceremonies that hold the world together. Some people may not believe that. They may laugh at it, but it's true. The Creator wants to be thanked. We Westerners have long since discontinued a communal practice of praising creation and in so doing of aligning ourselves with the continuity of life on earth. We are called now as never before to act upon our understanding of dysfunction and our urge toward wholeness. That's the end of the excerpt from the book. So I return to the instruction to humans from the animal world. Your job is to praise creation. That's right. Our job is to praise creation, to be grateful for it, not to maim, exploit, extract, redesign, and ultimately destroy, but to praise life, to bow in deep gratitude. As far as I can tell, we operate under the skewed assumption that we can only truly be grateful for life after we get what we want. Our fulfilled wish list is typically the measure of personal wellness. But if we take the survival of humanity seriously, we need to make the health of life itself 
primary on our list, not our personal wishes. We don't come first. Life comes first. If we could see that life comes first, I have no doubt that both human health and the health of the planet could be restored and that there would be far less suffering than what is experienced today in our modern world. I'm going to conclude this episode with a few quotes from Chief Orrin Lyons, now a 93-year-old elder, who for more than 14 years was a member of the Indigenous Peoples of the Human Rights Commission of the United Nations. I have tremendous respect for him. I'm deeply grateful for his wisdom, and I only wish there were more like him in this precious, fragile world. In the absence of the sacred, nothing is sacred. Everything is for sale. Man sometimes thinks he's been elevated to be the controller, the ruler. But he's not. He's only part of the whole. Man's job is not to exploit, but to oversee, to be a steward. Man has responsibility, not power. Even though you and I are in different boats, you in your boat and we our canoe, we share the same river of life. What befalls me befalls you. And downstream, downstream in this river of life, our children will pay for our selfishness, for our greed, and for our lack of vision. I do not see a delegation for the four-footed. I see no seat for the eagles. We forget and we consider ourselves superior, but we are, after all, a mere part of creation. And we must consider to understand where we are. And we stand somewhere between the mountain and the ant, somewhere and only there as part and parcel of the creation. Thank you, Chief Warren Lyons, for your fine words. And so, might we humble ourselves to our proper place at this late hour, recognizing the holy obligation we have to be the custodians of life we were meant to be, in order that life may continue in a good way for ourselves and for those yet to be born. Our job is to praise creation. Thank you for tuning in to NBC Life. For future episodes, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube. For free resources or to book a private session with me, head over to rochellelam.com. Until the next time, stay sane, grateful, and generous. Thank you.